Here's to the king. I was just over at the hospital doing the service there, and I shared this passage with those folks, and I asked for people to um, mention some of the kings that we have in our culture today. The first one was, of course, LeBron James. Uh, another one was Michael Jackson, the, ki <laughs> the king of pop. Uh, Elvis, right? How many of you guys remember Elvis, the king of rock and roll? Uh, if you grew up watching professional wrestling, you remember Jerry Lawler, the king who wore the crown and the robe into the ring. And someone else mentioned James Brown, who was the godfather of soul back in the 70s and 80s. But Jesus Christ is a different kind of a king, and that's what we're going to see here as we look at John chapter 12. And so this is what I'd like you to get out of our look at this passage of Scripture, that you leave the service comprehending the magnitude of the sacrifice our Lord made in light of his fi final entry on the first coming to be that Prince of Peace that Ken prayed about a few moments ago. We know next time he's come back to restore all things and to make war with the powers of darkness. But on his first coming, he came to be that sacrifice who would be that Prince of Peace who would restore our relationship with God the Father. So as we go into this passage of Scripture beginning in Verse 27, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Scriptures. Jesus himself, after he had entered Jerusalem, and I'll allude to that in a few minutes, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Then in verse 33, we're told by John that he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And this is Palm Sunday. Jesus knew he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And then he said, to wrap it up, while, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And, of course, this goes back to John chapter 1, where John the apostle said that Jesus Christ was the, that light. We were told in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness could not overcome him. Now, quickly to the next uh, slide. Understand what Jesus is presenting himself as. He's representing himself as the light of the world. And look at the evidence that Jesus has already displayed even before going to the cross. We have his miraculous birth. We have his sin sinless life. We have his powerful preaching of the coming of the kingdom. We have the power of his miracles which I talked about a couple weeks ago when we were in John chapter 9, which demonstrated his authority over disease, demons, and then back in chapter 11, death itself and the raising of Lazarus. 
then we have his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So Jesus is laying out the fact that he is the light of the world. Now I should reference the fact that in theaters across the country, and in our area, the Regal Cinemas and some of the AMC theaters are carrying the movie that is based off of the book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. It came out Friday, and I think it's going to go into Holy Week. And so if you have any questions about some of the evidences that Jesus offers and the way that the Gospels lay it out, I recommend that you go see that movie and you read the book. Now, back in the first part of chapter 12, I want you to see some of the contrasts in the reaction to Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead and as he presents himself as the Messiah, as the king who is going to go to the cross. We see, first of all, Martha. And we're told about Martha that she was always busy doing things. This was also seen in Luke chapter, chapter 10. We're told six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So we see that the extreme service mindset of Martha. We see the extreme devotion of Mary. Which of Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made with pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we see her extreme devotion be willing to give that priceless earthly sacrifice, which is a picture of her love for Christ, her Messiah. And then we see Judas's reaction, which is one of extreme hate, in verses 4 and 5. Judas was not focused on Christ being the Lord. He was focused on the monetary aspect of Jesus' ministry, possibly being the treasurer. So we're told that Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was concerned about earthly possessions rather than about the message that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so Judas was focused on that, and he had hate in his heart. We also have Lazarus himself, who had just been raised from the dead. And Lazarus, in his testimony, both in the fact that he was raised and also in his verbal testimony, provided a witness to what Christ had done. Now, if you were here two weeks ago when I uh, mentioned John chapter 9, the man born blind, and then about uh, three weeks ago in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, we have similar examples of the person who receives the miracle from Jesus witnessing to not only his power in performing the miracles, but also his authority as the Messiah. And so in verse 9, we're told, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And then we see the shifting of the crowds throughout John chapter 12. And we see that today in our world as well. There are some people in this passage who are curious onlookers, we're really maybe asking some questions about who this Jesus was. We had other people that were just there because they wanted to have the show. They saw what was going on, and they were just curious about the miracles themselves. And then we probably had other people who were like the uh, Jewish religious elite who actually were antagonized what Jesus was doing, who he was claiming to be, and they're the ones who would eventually plot to kill him. So we see that, that shifting. And then we do see the plotting of the Pharisees. 
beginning in verse 10, and then it's going to continue on forward throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. We're told that so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The ones that were honest doubters, the ones that were honest and curious about who he was, many of them were coming to Jesus because they saw the miracle and they saw the message that was behind the miracle. So those are the reactions to Jesus presenting himself as the king. And that leads us into the aspects of the presentation itself. So as we go into this section of John chapter 12, I want you to see very briefly six, six different aspects of Palm Sunday that you can take with you into your week. And I challenge you as you go into Holy Week that you do a, a more detailed study of the Gospels and you look at some of these aspects and maybe go back into some of the Old Testament prophecies describing what Jesus did, and, and that'll maybe enrich and enliven your uh, Easter experience as we go into this Holy Week. So the first aspect that I want to allude to is in verses 12 and 13. That is, Jesus presented himself, this final presentation, as fitting for Passover. Verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then notice here, they said Jesus was the king of Israel. But understand this, that many of the people who used those words, he is the king of Israel, did not understand what they were saying. Many of the disciples and many of the onlookers were expecting him to be the type of king who would be a political conqueror, who would be a ruler, someone who would overthrow the Roman authorities and who would restore the uh, Jewish religion to the state of prominence that it had once enjoyed before the Romans had come into the picture. That's not who Jesus came to be. Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace, as described in Isaiah chapter 9. He was presenting himself to be that peacemaker who would restore the relationship of people who are alienated from God the Father. And that's where the sacrifice comes in. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts this picture into theological language. We're told, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And verse 17, this is the capstone of what Paul is teaching. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those we're near. So Jesus Christ, in the way that he presented himself in a humble, lowly fashion, is offering himself as the king, but the king not like the flamboyant kings that we see in modern celebrity pop culture today, nor the political ruling kings, but to be the king who would provide a peace for the people of God who needed to have the relationship restored with the Father. And then we see also in verses 14 and 15, how this presentation actually was an aspect of the fulfilled prophecies that are portrayed in the Old Testament. 
okay? Verses 14 and 15, we're told, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written in Zechariah 9.9 in the Old Testament. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's not the type of king that I think of when I think of king in modern celebrity pop culture, the ones that dress flamboyantly, the ones that have authority, power, and honor. This is a king who came humbly, and he told us why, in order to be that perfect sacrifice for sin. Now, in the next slide, I have something that is interesting. It's interesting because it tells us about fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament. This is one of many. We're told that those prophecies from the Old Testament pointing towards a coming Messiah were not vague or limited to one part of his life, but they were specific, detailing a number of facts about his life so people might recognize him by comparing his life with the events foretold. And Floyd Hamilton and others as well, like Josh McDowell and the one I mentioned, Lee Strobel, have mentioned that there are about 332 distinct predictions in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts that were literally fulfilled in Christ. And 60 of those are what we would call major prophecies. An example of the major prophecy categories would be the different aspects of the virgin birth of Christ. Another would be this fulfilling of prophecy in his entrance on Palm Sunday. One of the things that's very interesting to note is that in many of these prophecies, it would be the enemies of Christ who actually did the fulfilling, which indicates that God is sovereign and that he was in total control. And in this case, it was actually God using human agencies to provide him with the vehicle for entering into Jerusalem. So we have all of these fulfilled prophecies which point us to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And Peter tells us this, and this is the Peter who doubted Christ, and it's the Peter who would deny Christ. He says this about 30 years later in his epistle. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So Peter recognized after the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of these prophecies and that the gospel itself is a very form of that fulfillment. So we see the fulfilled prophecy of Christ in this passage. And then we see the, the perplexity. I call it the faithful's perplexity. You notice again I have alliteration. They did not understand what Jesus was talking about when he presented himself. We're told that his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they did not understand fully what Christ had come to do. Now, how many of you remember back in Matthew chapter 16, we're told that uh, Jesus asked the disciples a question, who do you think that I am? And Peter was the one who was usually the first one to speak up, and he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. But further on down in Matthew chapter 16, as you transition in Matthew's gospel into the final part of the teaching, where we see a transition toward the crucifixion, we're told from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders 
and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that's Jesus talking, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And of course, in Matthew 26, which is portrayed beautifully in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, we know what happened when Peter denied him three times when the cock would crow and Peter would weep bitterly. So even after confessing Christ, Peter still did not understand completely why Jesus had to come and why Jesus was a different type of king than the disciples expected. So we have the perplexity of the faithful. They did not understand. And then we have the fickleness of the crowds in verses 17 and 18. We're told the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so there was a percentage of people that were just interested in the miracles. They were just there to take in the experience. And we see that throughout the Gospels. They wanted the signs, they wanted the miracles, but they did not necessarily want to have a relationship with the living God. And we see that in our day and age as well. Jesus said in Matthew 16, right before Peter confessed that he was the Christ, that he did not come to give signs because that's not what he was all about. We're told, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came in Matthew 16, just like they would do in places like here in John 12. They came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs and the times. And then he said this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, which we see referenced in Matthew 12. And so he left them and departed. The kingdom of God is not necessarily just for signs. It is much more than that. And so understand that this is an aspect of Holy Week that we need to keep in mind all the time. And then we also have the frustrated Pharisees. The Pharisees were frustrated because they could not do anything to uh, cause the people not to know that the miracles were real. And also, they could not do anything to counter Jesus' argument that he was the light of the world. So what did they do instead? They plotted to destroy him. So go back to chapter 11, and I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 11. We're told, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and, and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what are they concerned about? They're concerned about their power, their authority, their prestige. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he actually prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. 
Notice I mentioned in talking about the 332 fulfilled prophecies that many of them were actually fulfilled by people who were either enemies of Christ or people like this who would be what you would call a bystander. He didn't understand what was going on, but he actually prophesied what Jesus came to do. Okay, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Part of the fulfillment of God's plan all along. Then finally we have this. We have Jesus himself providing a fatal prediction. Jesus knew that this would be the hour. Fast forward, if you would, to chapter 13. Verses 1 through 7. Jesus talks about the fact that he knew that this was the end. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured his water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, again, Peter, who tended to put his foot in his mouth, right? Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but, will underst but afterward you will understand. We also see in John 16 and also in John 17 in the high priestly prayer that Jesus knew that his hour was coming. So Jesus, in the midst of all this chaos that is going on, perhaps as many as 2 million people in Jerusalem for the feast, all the activity, all the chaos, he was predicting that he would die and that he would rise again from the dead in a few short days. So as you look at the narrative here in John 12 with the bookends in John 11 and John 13, what's the big deal? I mean, I just read a lot of narrative. I gave you a bunch of responses to Christ. What's the big deal? What's the big takeaway as you go into your Easter week? There are three things that I think are absolutely essential. First of all, you need to see that Jesus had to die. Secondly, you need to see that that sacrifice purchased our eternal redemption. Then third, you need to understand that we individually, as believers in Jesus Christ, are also called to take up our cross back here to verses 24 through 26. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I think that is a message to the disciples telling them that you don't understand all this now, but you're going to understand after I rise again from the dead. And you're going to understand that you're also going to have to experience a death in order to bear fruit worthy of the kingdom of God. Because whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the difference between Jesus as the king of kings and all the earthly kings that we have. And we as followers of Jesus Christ must be willing to have that same sacrificial attitude that Jesus did in dying in our place. And he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, 
there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's a good message for us as we contemplate who Jesus claims to be. And so then, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Jennifer Benson Schultz, who's one of the writers for RBC Ministries, this is a devotion I took out of Daily Bread maybe a year and a half ago. She said something I think that kind of just kind of encapsulates the message of Palm Sunday. Today, people are still curious about Jesus. Although we can't pave his way with palm branches or we can't shout praises to him in person, we can still honor him. We can discuss his remarkable works. We can assist people in need. We can patiently bear insults. And we can love each other deeply. And that's part of the Chapel Next experience, to love each other deeply. Then we must be ready to answer the onlookers who ask this question, who is Jesus? And so are you ready to answer maybe an individual onlooker of your life this week, who is Jesus? If somebody were to ask you who Jesus Christ is to you, do you have a good answer? If somebody were to ask you why you follow Jesus Christ, are you able to give them a good answer? Or are you going to be like some of the people that we see in John chapter 12 who responded the way that they did? So that's a challenge for each one of us to have that relationship with Christ that is so close and so deep and understands, comprehends the magnitude of his sacrifice so that we're willing to lay everything aside in order to honor him in everything that we do. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, the light of the world. He is the Messiah. And as we go into, into Easter week, understand also that he is risen because he is alive. Amen? All right. Let's bow for prayer as the music team gets ready to come up and wrap up our service. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege we've had of looking at this very important passage of Scripture as we see Jesus Christ presenting himself as not only the King of Israel, but also the Messiah who would give himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And then challenging each one of us like he challenged his own disciples to be willing to lay everything aside in order to bring honor and glory to him so that we might be honored by the Father. I pray, God, that there is anyone here in this auditorium who needs to make that decision to receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that you would allow them to have the courage to go to one of the chaplains or one of the lay leaders of our service and to have a time on the side where they can pray that prayer and establish a relationship with you. And for those who maybe are floundering in their faith as we enter into Passion Week and we celebrate Easter, I pray, God, that through the study of Scripture and through the times of fellowship that we'll have together this week, that you would speak truth to people's hearts and minds and that they would have a life that would be transformed and made new through the power of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.